This is a podcast from the Business Times. The market capitalization of stable coins totaled about 128.8 billion US dollars as at early December. That's according to Coin Market Cap, and that's also an eye-popping amount. Who wants in on that action? And a trend in 2024 could be institutional players showing a keen interest in issuing their own stable coins, and it's a move that's been welcomed by the digital asset sector. Poor things, they suffered that long crypto winter following the crashes of prominent players in 2022. Welcome to Money Hacks, a podcast series by the Business Times, where we explore useful financial tips to help you on your money managing and wealth growing journey. I'm Howie Lim, and helping us out today, Gerald Go, co-founder and CEO Singapore of Signum. Gerald, hello. Thank you, Howie. Thanks for having me. So you need to help us with a 101, though. The difference between, say, stable coins and the more familiar cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's wonderful we start first with the definitions and get that out of the way. A stable coin, by definition, is a form of digital currency that attempts to maintain a constant value vis-a-vis a reference asset. Now, a reference asset can refer to a single fiat currency, like a US dollar, a basket of such fiat currencies. Or it could even refer to a commodity, let's say gold or silver, or other crypto assets. If you were using the broadest definition of cryptocurrency, we could argue that a stablecoin would fall within that categorization. So a cryptocurrency is basically any form of digital currency where the transactions are verified and secured using cryptography, and uh, these records are then distributed across a wide network of computers versus, let's say, a single centralized server. On that very broad technical definition, a stablecoin would be considered a cryptocurrency. However, given that the overwhelming majority of stablecoins that are in the market right now utilize a mechanism called fully asset-backed collateralization to maintain this value, for example, USDC, which is issued by Circle, they maintain, they claim at all times a one-to-one backing of USDC stablecoin with US dollars that are actually held in their bank accounts. Because such forms of stablecoins represent, in our estimation, north of 95% of all the stablecoins out there in the market by market capitalization, I think it's more accurate to refer to stablecoins as the prime example, uh, the most successful example for sure, of a real-world asset token token or coin that draws its value from having assets that are held as collateral against it. So we started with the 101 just because we've only been hearing most about cryptocurrencies and such, right? The winter might still be here, actually, I think, starting in 2022, spectacular collapses, etc., etc. Is that going to happen to stable coin? would be, I guess, my 101 question. Because what's stablecoin's role then in the digital asset and broader Web3 ecosystem? We don't want to be like still riding in the wild, wild west, Gerald. Absolutely. So that's where we talk about the real world use cases. How you, just to your point exactly, what are these stablecoins for? Stablecoins in our uh, regard, actually, when it comes down to it, they have two main and primary use cases. The first is a medium of exchange. The second is a store of value. When we utilize quote-unquote physical currencies like our cash, we exchange it for goods and services. Stablecoins fulfill that role in the digital space. Primarily, stablecoins are used to trade for digital assets, for example, cryptocurrencies, but increasingly also other real-world asset tokens like 
tokenized securities like tokenized funds. Tokenized assets can also comprise fractions of artworks and other more classical hard assets. So in that context, stablecoins serve as a means of payment and fulfill a very, very important function in the digital asset ecosystem. North of 70% of trades that occur on crypto exchanges like Coinbase or uh, locally DBS as an exchange and CoinHako, for example, as an exchange, more than 70% of trades that happen on these exchanges utilize stablecoins to facilitate that transfer. So this is the primary uh, use of a stablecoin at the moment. Now, it is also the case that not all stablecoins are as stable as the terminology applies, right? Okay. Not all <laughs> created equal. Okay. A absolutely. We might have heard of uh, the collapse, for example, of a stablecoin project called UST or Terra last year. And that was probably the catalyst for then the crypto winter that you described. In order to ensure that there is far more resilience and I think trust in stablecoins, governments and regulators the world over have been promulgating and rolling out new regulation, primarily to ensure investor protection. How do we make these coins as stable as possible? And to do that, you really need to ensure that the coins are indeed backed by the assets that the issuers of such coins claim they're backed by. And then you also need to ensure that the issuers of these coins, to the extent possible, are and remain solvent and so that they don't expose holders of the coins that they issue to undue risk. I think the regulatory frameworks that govern stablecoins will help to bring this whole industry further and further away from the Wild West and more and more into the realms of trusted, fully regulated financial services. And that's something that we at Signum and the vast, vast majority of other market participants in the digital asset space, that's what we want, right? We, we want increasing regulatory clarity because we fully believe that that will help to bring about a more broad-based and mainstream adoption of this exciting and innovative asset class. We hear the stablecoin markets expanding for the first time in more than 18 months. That's, that's a major trend reversal. You think the regulation coming in has something to do with it? I mean, is winter over? What do you mm. reckon? Yeah, absolutely. And here I go back to the primary use case of stablecoins. So far, the majority of stablecoin transactions involve the purchase of digital assets and primarily cryptocurrencies because they are the most prevalent, uh, the most widely adopted form of digital asset out there today. So it's not surprising, Howie, that this expansion in the market of stablecoins or the size of the stablecoin industry, which here I believe we are referencing the market capitalization of stablecoins, that's highly correlated with the resurgence and the revival of fortunes in the crypto markets. But total stablecoin market cap still below levels from earlier this year, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Well, yeah. well, from last year, I think at its peak market capitalization of stablecoins was probably close to $180 billion. Today, I think we're more in the realm of $120 to $130 So yes, still below. But when you look back to the trough, I think we are quite a ways from the trough. And this correlates very nicely with the rise in the market capitalization of the broad crypto industry. Something that in a development that might have gone unnoticed to those not watching the space, Bitcoin, the largest crypto and the you know, longest lived cryptocurrency, is up more than 150% year to date. 
And if you look at the broader crypto space, like the S&P Crypto Broad Index, it's up north of 125% year to date. So there's certainly been a turning of the tides in the price action. And stable coins, because of the integral part they play in facilitating cryptocurrency trading, they have also increased in market capitalization as a consequence. Still to come, in or out, we'll finally put Gerald to the test to figure out what the outlook for stablecoins is for 2024. More in a moment. The Business Times podcasts. Relevant, incisive, compelling content by some of the newsroom's most respected correspondents in markets, wealth management, and current affairs. Available on all your favorite audio content apps and at www.businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts. And now... Back to Money Hacks from the Business Times. We're speaking to Gerald Goh, who's from Signum. So Gerald, we talked a bit about regulatory frameworks needed in the stablecoin space. So MAS recently finalised theirs in August. Do you think it's friend or foe, Gerald? Because sure, we get it, regulations needed, the spectacular collapse like we talked about Terra Luna and UST last year. And that led to this contagion effect within the crypto industry, right? So someone's got to come in and police the whole thing. Absolutely. We at Signum have always advocated for increasing regulatory clarity because we believe that many market participants, uh, especially those from traditional financial institutions, traditional capital allocators, they have been sitting in the sidelines due to the concerns about inadvertently breaking any laws or breaching any regulations as a consequence of them participating in the space. So in order to bring about the further institutionalization and mainstreaming of digital assets broadly, we need to see more regulatory clarity. I think the framework that you reference uh, regarding stablecoins is one such example. At the highest level, I think what the MS uh, is seeking to do is provide more protection to participants in the space, to holders of such stablecoins by ensuring that the necessary safeguards to ensure that these, I think what the MES is referring to as single currency stablecoins, so they have to be linked to a specific fiat currency, either the Singapore dollar or any one of the G10 currencies, that these single currency stablecoins, in order to qualify as being MES regulated, would have to ensure the adequate and requisite amount of protections and safeguards are in place. These safeguards range from having the assets that back the stablecoin held and safeguarded in specific financial institutions and They also encompass regular monitoring and oversight by independent parties that the assets are indeed where they're supposed to be. These protections will help to ensure the wider usage of stablecoins. So like a digital Fort Knox. (laughs) Yes, you can think about it that way. The key risks that folks who acquire stablecoins will take. We must recognize that stablecoins in existence are ultimately issued by private commercial entities. And consequently, it's hard then to run away from counterparty risks. And a lot of the regulations that are being rolled out are to mitigate this counterparty risk to the extent possible. What do you mean by counterparty risks? Thieves? Burglars? Well, that is one aspect, right? We want to mitigate against the risk of bad actors representing, for example, that the assets are backed when they are indeed or in fact not. 
broadly, it's to ensure that the adequate risk mitigation actions, for example, holding these assets in a trusted and fully regulated financial institution like a bank, but also they refer to ensuring that the entity issuing the stablecoin doesn't partake in non-related businesses that then increase the level of business and operational risk, which might lead to this entity's insolvency. And in an insolvency scenario, it then makes it very difficult or much more complicated for holders of these stablecoins to lay claim to their assets. It's a really a multi-layered approach that is articulated in these frameworks. And what it should, and I hope it does, is to provide the public and traditional financial institutions and market participants with more comfort that there's a degree of regulatory oversight and investor protection in the space. We were talking about trend reversals earlier, right, with regard to the stablecoin market. So if investor interest is growing, I hear, should ours, potential investors' interests, grow as well, Gerald? Yeah, it's a very, it's a complicated question, Howie, because uh, obviously the digital asset space encapsulates really a broad church of assets, everything from more quote-unquote classical cryptocurrencies, the likes of which you described earlier, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and by last count, 15,000 other such crypto assets, all the way to digital representations of traditional assets on the other hand, right? What we call real-world asset tokens. So tokenized representations of... Mona Lisa's nose. <laughs> possibly, or maybe more likely, a fund product like a money market fund or a pool of private credit and everything in between. What I would encourage is really to get informed and get involved. The fact of the matter is that the advances in the digital asset industry over the last few years, not just in terms of the advancing regulation, which brings about more clarity, but also the advances in terms of the real-world applications of tokens and digital assets. And consequently, in our view, investors who don't stay abreast of these developments may miss out on exciting investment opportunities Signum's own contribution to bring about more of these real-world asset projects and products. Uh, in Switzerland, a couple of years back, we tokenized a Picasso painting. So this was about a 4 million euro Picasso artwork. We tokenized it into 6,000 units. So You own one of the eyes. <laughs> not specific pixels, let's say, on the painting, but you own a fraction of this painting. And in doing that, we hope to be able to democratize access to what had been, you know, historically more difficult to access blue chip artworks. Now, we've been able to bring this process to a very elegant conclusion. Earlier this year, we were able to effectuate the sale of the physical Picasso, which then generated for the holders of the tokenized art piece, something like a 20% IRR over their holding period. Nice. So in terms of expanding then the universe of potential products for investors to contemplate and consider, this is what tokenization does. You know, this is the future of finance that us at Signum and all others in the digital asset space are excited about. The trading of the tokenized Picasso tokens couldn't have happened without us creating our own digital Swiss franc stablecoin because in order to achieve the full benefits of digitalization, both the asset as well as the payment leg needs to be on-chain. So it needs to be represented on the blockchain. 
And then these assets can be reswapped for payments simultaneously and in as automated as fashion as possible, reducing the amount of manual intervention and more specifically, in our case, reducing then the dependency on traditional banking systems with all the incumbent frictions and costs that entails. Mm. So what would be a fairer question or a better question to ask you? The outlook of digital assets from a retail investor perspective, right? The outlook for digital asset investing in 2024, the outlook for stablecoin investing in 2024, (laughs) cryptocurrency, winter over, spring coming, something, something. Yes. And here's where I feel the hot breath of my compliance team on me to say, as a general caveat, um, this is not financial advice. I would say, however, we should not consider stablecoin exposures to be an investment per se. Stablecoins, as I described, are means to an end. They are means to access the broader digital asset ecosystem. And within that ecosystem, there are classical cryptocurrencies to consider, and then there are asset tokens to also contemplate. I think As it relates to the cryptocurrency space and the cryptocurrency market, certainly the rally that we have seen of late, many market observers have pointed out, is driven by certain macro developments within the space, including the potential approval of a Bitcoin spot ETF by the SEC, potentially as early as January, and the fact that BlackRock stepping into the ring to launch one of the proposed ETS. Many have taken as an indicator that more mainstream adoption and acceptance of cryptocurrencies are about to come. And obviously, that will bring about attendant tailwinds for the whole space. On that front, there's cause to be bullish if you choose to be. We also actually are equally excited by the rise of more and more real-world asset token projects. Year to date, as of September, real asset token issuance was already almost double the level of 2022. So I think something like 2.5 billion US dollars of issuances that have been tracked. I think it's fair to say that by year's end, we will have more than doubled the issuances of 2022. It's still a relatively small drop in the bucket as it relates to the, in the broader asset universe. However, I think the trajectory is clear. We're going to see more issuers take advantage of increased regulatory clarity to push out more interesting tokenized investment opportunities for mainstream investors. The areas where tokenization issuers have been focusing on have been more related to money market instruments, private real estate, as well as private credit. And on the latter two categories, it's exciting for me as a previously a private market investment professional because these asset classes have historically been very challenging for mainstream investors to access because they are illiquid, they are not offered by your traditional securities firms and your banks. But tokenization might bring about the wider access of these interesting and potentially profitable investment classes to the man in the street. Gerald, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure how we do speak to you and your listeners today. Next time, it'll be February, and you know what that means, Budget 2024. We can't get you a preview, but let's find out what the experts think should be in it and why. This has been Money Hacks by The Business Times. I'm Howie Lim. Till next time. This is a podcast by The Business Times. Find more BT podcasts at businesstimes.com.sg slash podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is meant to provide general information only. SPH Media accepts no liability for loss arising from any reliance on the podcast or use of third parties' products and services. Please consult professional advisors for independent advice.